It's John 10, 22 through 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called me then gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside. What about the one whom the Father set apart at his very own and sent into this world? Why then you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said, I am God's son? Do you not believe me unless I do the works of my Father? But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Amen. Would you remain standing? Thank you, Chelsea. We're going to pray as we have looked into the scriptures and are going to be talking about Jesus together this morning. Father, we um, really open up our hearts as we were singing earlier to receive all that you have for us, Lord. And it is possible that miracles can happen in these moments that we share together. That hearts could be changed, that bodies could be made whole, that oppression could be taken off of us, that chains of addiction that sadness, that darkness could be beaten back. And so we ask, Father, for the miracles that happen when a group of people get together with faith, even mustard seed size faith. The little faith we have, we bring it together in the room and say, Jesus, move mightily among us today. Change our lives, encourage our souls, bring significant changes into areas where we feel like we are stuck, not moving forward, areas where we feel like we are bound. Father, have your way in us today. We want to be surprised by what you do in church. I thank you, God, that we can come together and expect great things from you, Lord. We expect great things from you today. We ask that the scriptures would just be unleashed upon our hearts and and clear to our minds, and that you would change us by very fact of the nature of your word, which has come to speak to us and to change us. Now, as we look into the scriptures, Father, I ask that Jesus would get all the glory and that you would edify us, and that for those men and women who may have come here today, 
who have not yet made Jesus Christ Lord of all. Father, I pray that you would move by your Holy Spirit upon hearts that many men and women would choose Jesus today, that you would lay your claim upon us, Father. And so we ask now that the time that we spend studying and thinking through the text would be blessed by you. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen, amen, amen. Somebody, you guys are all scared of the front section here? Like, I, I can't spit that far. Um, thank you for letting me feel alone up here this morning. We are in John chapter 10 in our John series. And if you just started with us, uh, typically at Emmaus, we like to take books of the Bible and, and study them from beginning to end. And we find ourselves in John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42, as Chelsea read for us this morning. And it brings up a topic that I just want to, to throw out this question for us as we think through our text this morning, and that is simply this. What is the most important thing you know about Jesus? What is the most important thing you know about Jesus? Go ahead. He loves us. He's God. He died for us. Be bold. We're talking about Jesus here. What's the most important thing you know about Jesus? Do you know anything about Jesus? Son of God, faithful, never sinned. So, so I'm sure, I mean, if we were more bold, we could all say lots of things, hopefully, that we know about Jesus. And to take all the things we know about Jesus and to say which of these things is most important might be sort of difficult because there's so much good about Jesus, so much perfection, so much power in Jesus but at the top of the list of the most important things we know about Jesus is, as was said, he is God. Because everything he does, the power and effect of it is tied back to whether or not he has the authority to do it as God, the divine one. It's the theological term we use called the incarnation. That is, God was made a man inside of the person of Jesus Christ. God became a man. And uh, it was in the year 451 in the Middle Eastern country of Turkey, there were a group of Christian leaders that came together to combat heresies that were happening inside the church, a, an assault and attack on the identity of who Jesus was, specifically his divine nature. And the church gathered together in Chalcedon, modern-day Istanbul, to clarify the nature of Christ as both God and man. And so this became the Chalcedonian Creed. And in that creed, there are five major truths about the nature of Jesus and the incarnation that are important for us to know as we consider the most important truth about Jesus that any of us could know, his nature as God. So five things that the Chalcedonian Creed uh, has given to the church about the importance of the nature of of Jesus and the incarnation. First of all, number one, Jesus has two natures. That is, he is God and man. Number two, each nature is full and complete. That is, he is fully God and fully man. Number three, each nature remains distinct. He is divine and he is man and they are distinct and yet he is one. Number four, Christ is the only or excuse me, Christ is only one person. That is, there's not multiplicity in Christ. He is one. And then this one, number five, this one is going to take a little thinking for you to get your mind around. Things that are true 
of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Which essentially means that some things that are true of the man Jesus were not always true about the God Jesus. Let's break this down for a second so we can get our mind around what that actually means. That there are things that are true about one nature that are nonetheless true about the person of Christ. That is, uh, the man Jesus and the God Jesus, there were some things true about the man that weren't true about the God side of him. The man could hunger, but God could not. The man could get tired, but God could not. The man could die, but God could not. How many of you know that's true? You think God gets hungry, tired, dies, right? Unless your view of God is really lame, you don't think that the God that you would come here to worship and give money and, uh, and, and worship to and your life to could actually get hungry, tired, and die. But the man Jesus could. But then there are things that the God Jesus were true about him that weren't true about the man Jesus. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing for people that don't believe in Jesus as we do. The God Jesus has all knowledge, but the man did not. Because he, Philippians tells us, made himself, he stripped himself of his God-like nature and became a man. So the God Jesus is eternal, but the, the man is not. Now this is where Probably the biggest point of contention is when it comes to Jesus. You know Jesus is controversial. How many of you know Jesus is controversial? Um, but I would say this. He's controversial, but there are rarely any humans that disregard him. Jesus is perhaps one of the most important figure and most popular figure, whether you believe in him as God or not. People regard Jesus. All major world religions have a regard for the person of Jesus. They don't hold to the Christian worldview or an orthodox view, an orthodox Christian view of Jesus, but they all have regard for Jesus. For instance, in Islam, they hold that Jesus is, uh, they hold him in high regard as a prophet sent by Allah, but he's not God. In Judaism, you know the Jews have faced much persecution for their treatment of Jesus and, and, and anti-Semitism and uh, the Holocaust and, and the Crusades, uh, the Jews paid a dear price for their relationship with Jesus. But even though all of that, modern Judaism primarily views Jesus as a Jewish teacher, but of course not their Messiah or God. Yet high regard. Hinduism, in Hinduism, Jesus places as one of the many deities that the Hindus regard and even worship. They, they looked at Jesus, the Hindus look at Jesus as the most self-actualized person. Uh, it's what the Hindus call dharma, to be self-actualized, to, to find yourself. And so in Hinduism, there's a branch of Hinduism that looks as, at Jesus as an idea, the Christ knowledge. That is, he is an idea to be emulated, but wasn't actually a human historic figure. But the, the, the Christ is held high in Hinduism. And then in Buddhism... Jesus was an enlightened man and considered a wise teacher. All out to say, the world, religions, hold Jesus in high view, but not high enough. There's a lot of people have opinions about Jesus. Katy Perry, Bono, Justin Bieber. They all have views on Jesus. Actually, uh, Bono, Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, they believe Jesus is God. Even, even, 
wise thought leaders like Mike Tyson have a view on Jesus. I read his uh, comments in an interview that he gave in 20, 2002. Um, this is what Mike Tyson says about Jesus. If Jesus were here, do you think Jesus would show me any love? Do you think Jesus would love me? I'm a Muslim, but do you think Jesus would love me? I think Jesus would have a drink with me and discuss why are you acting like that? Now, he would be cool. He would talk to me. So there you go, Mike Tyson. He's got his own views on how Jesus would be, but maybe one of the most humorous came from the late Robin Williams in a comedy sketch uh, tour he did in 2002 called Live on Broadway. Um, and this is what Robin Williams said. Some people say Jesus wasn't Jewish. Of course he was Jewish. 30 years old, single, lives with his parents. Come on. He works in his father's business and his mom thinks he's God's gift. He's Jewish. Give it up. <laughs> the point is, is that whether you're talking about major world religions or pop stars or comedians or even heavyweight title champ boxers, people have opinions on Jesus. And yet for 2,000 years, we've been trying to find consensus on who is Jesus. Is he who he said he was and what did he say about himself and so in John chapter 10 the religious leaders come to Jesus and are trying to settle this issue who are you now look down at verse 24 they say this to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you're the Messiah tell it to us plainly now in the last section we looked at last week of this chapter Jesus gave lots of strong metaphors to describe himself and the work that he'd been sent to do. But apparently, these religious leaders weren't seeing what Jesus was saying. But Jesus said a lot of powerful things about himself, and yet they're still in suspense and mystified as to who are you. For instance, last time we looked, Jesus said things such as that he says, there is a sheepfold, and he is the door of the sheepfold in verse 7. That verse 11, he is the good shepherd. In verses 1 through 3, he has many sheep among the Jewish flock. Verse 16, he also said he had many sheep that are outside the Jewish flock. Verse 17, he said that his mission would be to lay down his life for his sheep. And verse 18, he would also then take up his life again. And then in verses 16 and 27, he says things like his sheep would know his voice when he calls them and they would follow him. And in the end, there will be one flock from all people of the world. Verse 16 but they still don't get it. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Just tell us who you are. And so Jesus, in answer to that, plainly explains a few things about himself. But look at verse 25. With this in mind, if you're Messiah, tell us plainly. Tell us who you are. Don't hold us in suspense. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, if you're guessing whether or not this was inflammatory, look at verse 31. And his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. So do you think this was inflammatory? 
Yes, it was inflammatory. Jesus said, dropped some major bombs here. Mic dropping constantly in just a short little condensed several statements in verses 25 to 29. He says three big ideas that I want to put in front of us in, in this statement concerning uh, eternal security and unbelief and, and about himself. So, so first of all, the first thing that Jesus states sort of plainly is you should have known. Number one, big idea, you should have known. I was doing Messiah signs. And your prophets said, when the Messiah comes, he will do these things. I have done these things. You should have known. I've been standing right in front of you. And you, knowing Torah, knowing the prophets, knowing the Old Testament, the way you do Jewish religious leaders, you should have known that I am doing what Messiah does. But they missed it. So first big idea, he says, you should have known this. The second big idea is you don't know him because you don't belong to him. If you were mine, you'd listen to me and follow me. I find this to be very interesting, especially as it concerns my understanding of why some people don't believe in Jesus. I don't know about you if you've been following Jesus for a while. I don't know if it ever happens to you where you just go, I don't understand how some people just don't believe in Jesus because I so believe in him and follow him. I don't understand how people could not believe in Jesus. And Jesus simply says plainly, you don't believe in me because you don't belong to me. Now, the big question everybody has, we've been arguing about for hundreds of years, is what comes first? Jesus belonging, you belonging to him or you believing on him? Because Jesus says, if you don't belong to me, you can't believe in me. Even though I show you all the Messiah signs right in front of you, you won't believe because you don't belong. Well, how do you know whether or not you belong? Because you can believe. Well, how do you know if you're supposed to belong? Well, you wouldn't be able to unless Jesus said, no, you're one of mine. And mine will follow me. Mine will hear my voice. Those who belong to me will follow me. Probably one of the greater analogies, uh, illustrations for this I, I've heard from this theological tension of what comes first, belonging or believing. Um, pastor, late pastor from a generation ago, H.A. Ironside, gives this illustration of, of a person coming to heaven's gates. And, and sort of the proverbial idea of you coming to heaven's gates and above the gate of heaven reads Revelation twenty two seventeen, which says, whoever will, let him come. So when a person walks up to heaven's gate, they see a, a welcoming invitation. Whoever will, Revelation twenty two seventeen, let him come. And, and you walk through heaven's gate, being welcomed in freely. But then when you arrive through the gate, you turn around only to find Ephesians 1, 4 on the other side, written, chosen in him before the foundation of of the world. So what happened first? Was I welcome into heaven's gate or was I already decided that I would go through heaven's gate? Yes, you were. And the point that Jesus is making here is whether or not you understand how it all works out, those who belong to Jesus will come to Jesus and believe on Jesus and follow Jesus and those who do not will not come. Now, this brings great comfort to me because the analogy I like to use is like those homing pigeons. Those homing pigeons, they're amazing. Do a little research and reading on a homing pigeon. They have put in them by God designed intrinsically to have a, a, a great connection to home. So they can go thousands of miles away from home, but their internal radar, their internal compass always takes them back home. And that that's what... It, 
essentially happens to you and I is that when Jesus changes your heart, you have home in your heart. You have inside of you an understanding of home. So I tell this to people all the time. When they wonder about people that they love who seem to turn away from God or going in a direction that's unhealthy and they're not, it's not leading to human flourishing. And, and all, all I can say when someone begins to walk the wrong direction is, if they belong to Jesus, they'll be back. So I don't have to worry. Certainly I don't want to see people I love run away from Jesus and spoil their lives. But just like that prodigal boy that Jesus talked about, that rebellious son, the younger son of two sons, who ran away and spent all his father's inheritance, he had home inside of him. Father was inside of him. So after he had done all the things that he shouldn't have done and his life hit bottom, he had home inside his heart. And that's why the Bible says as parents that you should train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart. You put home in their heart. And so someone says, Brian, do you think you could walk away from Jesus? I'd say, not forever. He's done, he's done so much, I could never leave him forever because I have home in my heart. I've got Jesus saying, you belong to me, therefore you believe in me. You belong to me, therefore you hear my voice. And so we can just simply say, our biggest prayer for the men and women that are in our lives that we get concerned about because of the decisions they're making is that Jesus, if they belong to you, bring them home soon. Because if they don't come home soon, they're just going to do worse things to themselves. The thing that I'm, mo I'm most concerned about, my, my children or, or my friends or family, people that I love at Emmaus, is that you don't wander from home too long. Because you'll be back, but you'll just get jacked up out there. You'll just do a bunch of stupid stuff. But I, but I, I am confident in this. You'll always come home. You'll find your way back to Jesus. And that's the comfort we have. And Jesus said it to these religious leaders, if you belong to me, you'd believe. But you don't belong, so you don't believe. But the next thing he says that, that is really, really comforting for us this morning is that once you're in him, you're secure in him. I know this is a debate within the church. Can you lose your salvation? Blah, blah, blah. White noise. Listen, Jesus said... If you are with me, you are in my hand. No man can snatch you out. He said, if you're in my Father's hand, who's even more powerful, you cannot be snatched out. That sounds pretty secure. Like you ain't getting out. And my belief about salvation is that when Jesus does what he does, he lays such a claim on you that it's an indelible, permanent mark. Well, the Bible talks about regeneration this way. God takes out your old heart, it was stony, chucks it, puts in his heart, sticks it in you, and then you become regenerate. You have a new nature. You don't lose that. You don't lose new nature. You may do a bunch of dumb stuff in your life, but Jesus has so laid his claim on you that you're not wiggling out. You're so in the Father's hands that not even you could snatch yourself out of Father's hands. You can't even get in your own way. You can do a bunch of dumb stuff, but you are secure in the hands of Father. And that's the gospel that we get to preach, is that we are secure in Jesus. Now most of us would hear this, I, I hope so, and feel deeply touched and, and moved and glad of heart, even if you know this stuff. Most of you know this stuff, but it, it makes the heart glad. 
So just be reminded that when Jesus lays his claim on someone, it's forever. You know, I, I use this analogy all the time. We have four children. They are mine. They'll always be mine. No matter what they do, they're mine. They were born into my family. They bear the Fowler crest and Annika until she finds some young stud to marry. Uh, then we have to give that up. But these are my children. And so there's not really options. We're not, we're not considering adoption, what we have before. But, I mean, not really. You know, they're ours. They can do a bunch of stupid things. And they can, they can wander away. They can insult me. They can rebel against me. But they belong to me. It's, it's just a matter of how tough are you going to make the relationship. But you're my kid. No matter what happens, you're my kid. I was, a I was a there the day your naked body was born. I changed that diaper. I know you. You're mine. You belong to me. Now let's just not make the relationship more difficult than it needs to be. That, that, now for most of us, those kinds of concepts in John 10 cause rejoicing of the heart and comfort. But the religious leaders that heard this were not comforted, but rather verse 31 Upon hearing this, they picked up rocks to stone him. Why? That's a big question. When we ask what's the most important truth about Jesus, the reason they were picking up rocks to stone him is verse 33. They said, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Why were they going to kill Jesus? Because it was clear what he was saying about himself. I'm God. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons... They, they don't believe Jesus is God, but the religious leaders in that day unpack and understanding what Jesus was saying said, we're going to kill you for blasphemy because you said you're God. Now, either Jesus is God or he's not, but you don't get to just kind of put him in this category of really good prophet, really great teacher, because he said, I'm God, and either he is or he's not. And they were very clear, you said you're God, that's blasphemy, we will kill you. And what I find interesting, though, is the way that Jesus answers the threat of being stoned and accused of blasphemy. It's sort of weird. I don't know if when Chelsea was reading this, it kind of hit you as weird, or if you've read this before. How many of you read this passage before? I hope that maybe this kind of, if you're paying attention, you might think, what? What is he saying? But look at verse 34. So they're about ready to kill him and accuse him of blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answered, is it not written in your law? I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart at, as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Now, Jesus was very obviously still holding his firm position that he's God because again, verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He just called these religious guys gods. He's quoting from Psalm 82. Now, if you read Psalm 82, which I think you should, especially if you want to understand this text better, Psalm 82 is in reference to men who were put in positions of authority. They were called, in Exodus, the judges. The judges were civil leaders that were given power. We would consider them like our Supreme Court judges. They were societal leaders 
that were given the right to declare you innocent or guilty based on evidence. So your life was in their hands. They could declare the death penalty over you. And so they were called little g gods. They were judges. The reason they were considered to have a place of, of a godlikeness in, in the little g sense, not the big g sense, the little g sense, is because they had been given authority to pronounce life or death over people, to pronounce a sentence over somebody. So Psalm 82, read it. It's talking about judges in Israel. Not talking about them being elevated to a place of God. So why would Jesus use this as a way to defend his deity? As they were literally picking up rocks ready to kill him and accusing him of blasphemy, why would he go to Psalm 82 and say, haven't you not read that you are gods? It says in the scriptures that you are gods. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's creating a comparison. If you could look at mere men who've been put in a position as God's little g, judges, and, and not have any problem with Psalm 82, then what y'all tripping about when the one who was sent from heaven, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and you've seen my Messiah works, why are you tripping on calling me God? You already call those judges God, why do you call them God? Because they have the right to sentence life or death. And Jesus said, I am doing all the Messiah stuff I've come from heaven, and I and the Father are one. It's, I, my works testify about who I am. You already are used to calling people gods. I am Messiah. I am God. Don't trip. Now, of course, they did trip. They picked up rocks and were ready to seize him and stone him again. And I love, it says, again, they try to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. I'm like... I literally just, and I'm like, what? I wonder what that looked like. Would it elbow somebody in the face or just kind of like use his God powers to disappear or like juke move out of his robe and just Heisman on somebody's palm, somebody's head? But Jesus got out of this one. He, they were already trying to kill him. Then he gave him the Psalm 82 talk. That didn't work. And then he just escaped. Because again, Jesus said, I, have the, I lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. No man took Jesus' life from him. He was on a divine timetable, so it's like, y'all jokers want to kill me. I won't be killed until I decide to be killed. And there is a time when I'm supposed to die, and it ain't yet. So get off me. We used to say that when I was, you know, high school. Get off me. Get off me. And Jesus escaped their grasp. And you know what's funny or interesting here is the way that John writes this. Because he chooses to connect two narratives. The first narrative we've gone through. Verses 22 to 39, the narrative of unbelief of the religious Jews in the temple. So at this time, Jesus was at the temple for one of the Jewish feasts. It was probably the feast we call now Hanukkah. And so they were there, and it was there that Jesus was confronted with the unbelief of the Jews. So they tried to stone Jesus at the temple. But then Jesus says, there's that narrative, those people at the temple, and then there's this narrative. Look at the, the way that John ends this Story narrative. Verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a sign, this is a great thing to be said about your life. John wasn't a miracle worker, John the Baptist. He never performed a sign. But all that he said about this man, Jesus, 
was true. I'm like, put that on my tombstone. That's a well-lived life. He didn't do anything great, but everything he said about Jesus was right. Boom. You can end life that way. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. You see what John just did? He's using a literary device to say, there's the temple and the river. There's the people at the temple, the institution, the religious, the system, the church, the box. They tried to kill me. Then there's the people at the river, in the wild, the sinners, the rugged, the uncouth, the unorthodox, the people who I came to at the river, and it was at the river that it says that many believed on Jesus. So he's comparing two places and two ideas and two types of people. There are temple people and there are river people. There are religious people and there are people that are so broken they just need God's help and they don't care. They're just reaching out for God. And he leaves the temple. It's not like he disregards temple people. But then he goes to the river and the way he's received at the river is very different than the way he's received at the temple. And I ask myself, in the age in which we live, 2,000 years removed from this story, it still remains that the place you're going to find Jesus and people who are desirous of Jesus is probably more at the river than it will be at the temple, at the sacred spaces. You know, the Bible says that the Most High no longer dwells in temples made by men's hands. God is not impressed by church. I love church in the sense of the called out people of God, the ecclesia, the called out people of God, the collection of God's people. That is the church, but, but God doesn't look at buildings and go, wow, amazing. I mean, he created all the stuff, so nothing we make is going to impress him. And, and it's often the institution the box, the temple, if you would, where people debate constantly, where they, they build fences and they don't dig wells, where they're not inviting, where they're exclusive, where they're religious dogmatists that, that, that fill the four walls of, of the religious institution. And Jesus goes there and pleads with them, but he's not welcome there. And then John says, but then he went to the river. And he went to the river. And John the Baptist, the gospel preacher, was there. And there was a bunch of people that came out to him, not in a building somewhere, but at a river somewhere. And they said, Jesus, we believe in you. We've been looking our whole lives for Messiah, and we couldn't find him in that synagogue or that temple. But here you are down by this river. Emmaus, we exist as men and women who follow Jesus, not to hide inside a church, but to go to the river where the sinners are. Our target audience at Emmaus, you know, some churches have their target audience. We're, we're targeting young professionals or we're targeting, you know, young families with 2.5 kids, however that works out. And, or we're, we're targeting, you know, uh, whatever. We're targeting old rich people so we can build big buildings or whatever. Um, that, their target audience. Our target audience, because of Jesus, is sinners. <laughs> That's our target audience. And y'all are sinners, saved by God's grace. So there's, oh, there's only two types of sinners, recovering sinners and not yet recovering sinners. We're all, most of us are recovering sinners. We're still working towards sanctification. Our target audience is simply that. And the, the amazing thing is Jesus' reputation was that he had his greatest credibility among the most sinful people at the river. Let me just read you a couple passages that highlights the ministry of Jesus. Unlike temple, this is river 
The Bible says things like this. Jesus had this reputation, Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. So you know, Jesus was a good time, right? He wasn't what you think. He came eating and drinking. Just that alone, I'm like, yes, team Jesus. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. They thought he drank too much. That's going to really mess up some of your theology. I'm not saying Jesus was a drunkard, but they thought he was. They thought he ate too much and drank too much. That was the accusation against him. I'm not saying be a glutton and a drunkard, but that was the accusation because Jesus showed up eating and drinking. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. And then it says that he was also accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the accusation against Jesus. You party too much and you have lame friends. You just like hang out with sinners. And I'm like, that's Jesus. Like him or not, that's God. When God came, he's like, as I come as a man, I'm going to do this and not the other. I'm not going to wear a religious robe. I'm going to get down to the river. I'm going to go eat and drink with the people whom the religious system says, how could you dare have table fellowship with them? And Jesus said, watch me. Luke 19, verse 10, again, one of the thesis statements about Jesus is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why did Jesus come? He said, because I'm looking for people who don't know where they're going. I'm looking for people who are lost in life, lost in identity, who, who just need me. Not people who think they have no need. People think they're found. They, they don't need me. I'm, I've come to seek and save those who are outcasts and lost. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, again, in the ministry of Jesus, it says, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you know when Jesus said that, I've not called, come to call the righteous, but sinners, he didn't mean there are some people who are righteous and there are some people who are sinners. What he meant is, you all need me, but some of you don't think you do. This is, this is self-righteous people. You could just put in there, I've not come to call the self-righteous. Self-righteous people tried to kill Jesus and eventually did. They picked up rocks to stone him. Sinners came to the river and said, oh, I need you. I need you, Jesus. I, I don't care what all those religious people are saying. I see that you have the life of God in you, and I need you, Jesus. That happens at the river, not at the temple. I, uh, a couple of years ago, when I first got here to North Carolina, there was a um, church planning network called the Table Network. And uh, they, were, they were having a meeting, so I just wanted to go and hang out with these guys. They seemed like really cool men of God and women of God that were wanting to do real cool gospel work in cities all over America. And the guy who runs it is a, a really great guy named Russ Johnson. And he was kind of explaining the vision and mission of the Table Network and their church planning strategy. And, and he said a lot of interesting, cool things. But when I boil it all down, the thing that Russ Johnson was saying is the Table Network's approach to planting churches all over the, all over the United States is his, his basic premise is go try to make as many friends of sinners as you can. That's your job. The way to church plan is go find where sinners are and try to make a bunch of friends there. And then he talked about this time when he was at his uh, church community and he was preaching one Sunday or whatever. And he was talking about the mission of reaching sinners like Jesus did. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And he asked everybody in the church to pull up their phones, which most pastors are telling you to put them away. He said, now you can bring them out. Bring out your phones and pull up your contacts. Scroll through your contacts and tell me how many people on your contact list are not Jesus followers. And he said, basically, his, his punchline was, we need to have more non-Christian friends. Now, mind you, to me, that's, 
totally upside down because I came from the other direction. I came into the church and I had nothing but non-Christian friends. And the church kept telling me, you need to get rid of your non-Christian friends. And I understand why. Because I was doing what they were doing. And I was unhealthy and I wasn't spiritually strong. And, and I, it was unwise for me to maintain those friendships. But early on, I had nothing but non-Jesus following sinner friends. All my friends were sinner friends. But then I, I tried to walk with Jesus and I just ditched all my sinner friends. Because I didn't know how to handle them and walk with Jesus. So early on, I ditched all my sinner friends. And then I got all a bunch of new Christian friends. Then all my friends were Christian church friends. And I wore that as a badge of honor. I don't hang out with pagan sinners. But then I'm reading the Bible and Jesus did. I'm like, hey, what's, what's up with that? How do I do this? You know? And so then it got even worse because then I became a professional Christian. They started paying me to be a Christian. It's called being a pastor, working at a church. Talk about a sanitized environment. There was a no... There were very few um, shady things happening. I wasn't dealing with sinners anymore. And, and what happened to me is, is my friends weren't just church people now. They were the elite. I was friends with just pastors. Most of my closest friendships were with pastors. And then I, I came to a point where I'm like, I don't have any sinner friends. I need sinner friends. Like, I'm not desperate for friends. I'm desperate for sinner friends. I don't want any more Christian friends. That sounds so lame because we're a church that's all about community. Look, I love that, but I need some more sinners in my life. I need some more pagan people in my life. Now, some of y'all have it a lot easier. Most of you do because your vocation, just by nature of you working outside of a church, you don't work inside of a church, you're not in a sanitized environment. So you're with sinner friends all the time. And the point is to say, those are the places that Jesus is. And the, the, as the church, one of our uh, callings and our, our, our push should be to get down to the river. How could we conspire and think, how do we get around more people in a wise and healthy way that don't follow the Lord Jesus? How do we have table fellowship with men and women who are far from the Lord? That's the mission of the church. The mission of the church isn't to build one big silo first and create a place where all the Christians can hide. This is not a bunker to hide in. The, the church is a launch pad for you to go out into the world with salt. Jesus said, I'm the salt and light. Go out with Jesus into the world with the salt and light of His name. Gospel bearers. And so the prayer for my life and your life in Emmaus is that we would continue to think outside of Sunday morning. However big or successful a Sunday morning is in any given church in America, that's not the win. I was just with a bunch of pastors and pastors of mega churches. I mean mega churches, like they're running small cities. We're all sitting in the same room and it was the funniest conversation because we're all talking about the same thing. What defines a win as a church. And everyone said it's not bricks, bucks, and bodies. It's not things that you can count, weigh, or measure. It's not about that. It's about something else. And it's about seeing people that don't follow Jesus begin to follow Jesus. Whether they ever come to a formal church or not, it's the fact that they get brought into the family of God. So our mission and calling should not be how to build some really amazing, sexy, cool church. There's so many of those in the triangle. 
And I'm not disparaging them at all. We need those for some reason. God needs those. He has those in place. If they weren't supposed to be here, they wouldn't be. But we're not trying to do that. That ain't the game we're in. We're saying, so Jesus, I just imagine that you went to this really nice temple and you told everybody who you were, that you're the shepherd of their souls. And they said, you're a blasphemer and they tried to kill you. And then you went from there and you went down to this river. No church, not even a building. Like you don't even have a building? How are you going to do this? And he's like, it doesn't matter, I'm here, and there's this water, and then there's this gospel bearer, John, and we can have some church down here, and all these people start coming to Jesus down by this river. And, and we get to choose the kind of way that we live out our Christian life at a river or at a temple. And I would just say, I, I would guess, as much as Jesus did frequent the temple, because he still cares about religious prigs, but he also has more success and connection and there's more life change down by the river. And that's where Jesus has called us. And so I just keep pleading with God to give me some more sinful friends. Not, not people that aren't supposed to be sinful like you guys, but you know what I mean. People that should need to come to Jesus. I don't think we need to worry about what the temple people are doing anymore though. I think we just need to say, I think I'm just going to follow Jesus and do what he did and try to make more friends with more people who are far from Jesus. You know what that's called? That's called messy church. That's called river church. That's called a place for sinners to come. We want to be the kind of community that says we honor and, and reverence the Lord Jesus and yet we follow his ways, the way he lived his life and he just kept having all these people in his life that you would think, you should not be hanging out with those people. And I'm like, you know, let, let people accuse us, not of being unwise, but look at us and say, well, you guys are way too open, way too inclusive, way too allowing sinners to come in the building. You know, you know what the call of, of Emmaus should be? All are welcome. Come just as you are, but we don't expect Jesus to keep you that way. We're not playing fast and loose with sin or unwise behavior or, or, or no care about doctrine or truth. No, we hold all that high, but we hope to do it in such a way that the table is set for anyone to come. And that's probably not going to start by them showing up to the theater on a Sunday morning. What's probably going to involve is you putting yourself in places wherein you can invite sinners into your life more deeply. And I just tell people, evangelism is relationship. It's not some weird, cold-calling salesman on a street corner that interrupts some couple going to dinner and gives them the four spiritual laws or some, you know, I mean, that could be effective, but that's not how I'm rolling. The way that evangelism is most effective is that we invite people into our life through relationship. And I guess my question is, have you over-sanitized your friendships to the point where you don't have very many people that don't love Jesus that you're in relationship with? Even if you work at a place where everyone at your office, very few of them even love or care about Jesus, there's a way to keep those people at arm's length. Go, those are those work people that annoy me, and then there's the church people that I like. Because we all live in an echo chamber where we agree with each other. I'm not saying abandon all your crew over here, but I'm saying there's a way to live as a missionary that says, I've got, I've got to go out with the power and gospel of Jesus down to the river where sinners hang out and believe that Jesus wants to call them there. 
And the only thing you need to know to do that, to invite sinners in your life, is just to simply say this. Here's what you know. Jesus is God, and he can make people whole. So now come to the river. Jesus is God, and he can make people whole. And so may God really wreck our hearts for inviting people to follow Jesus. Again, I have this friend, uh, pastor friend guy. I got together with him last week, and um, again, I have all these pastor friends. I don't have any pagan friends. I need to reverse that. And he really convicted me because the first thing he said to me, it was early in the morning when we met. He's like, Brian, I had the best morning. I'm like, bro, you already been at it this morning? It's like 7 o'clock or whatever. What have you been doing already? He goes, I, I had a meeting with a guy that doesn't follow Jesus. And, our, uh, and someone from our church just said, hey, you should meet with my pastor. And this guy's far from Jesus. And he got to, and he was like, man, that's a win for me. Like if I can start my day sitting at a table with somebody who's so far from Jesus that we can talk about life and the Lord and, and where he stands with Jesus and all that. And, and, and I would just say, may, may God be continually burdening our heart to follow the way of Jesus, to invite more people into our lives. And, and, and maybe inviting them to Sunday morning is easy. Maybe that's an easy win. Maybe it's inviting them to your community group. Maybe our community groups need to be way more hospitable to sinners. I'm not saying they're not, but man, just consider as a community group, if you gather together, like when was the last time we had our unsaved neighbors over to join us for a cookout? Um, or even your own life being more hospitable, not just inviting the people in church that will invite you back, but saying, where are the people that aren't gonna get invited by some church folk and I'm gonna be making friends and inroads that way and I'd be willing to go where they are. I'd be willing to take steps outside of my comfort zone to really love people who don't yet know Jesus. That's my prayer for us this morning. Father, I now pray as we prepare to go to the table to eat and drink of your uh, body and blood, to remember the life that you lived, the death that you died, the way that you have, have, have called us to the river ourselves. And having come to the river ourselves, we know that there's life there. And Father, I pray that we would be men and women who know how to bring other people and call other people to places where you are very known. And, and so Father, I pray that you would continue to shape our individual lives and our church community life into the kind of place where sinners are welcome that our heart would be to invite people to the table. So Father, I pray for um, my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray that our hearts would really be burdened for the one or two people that maybe sit close to us at work or who live across the street or who go to the same school or we share some space or sphere of influence. Father, Burden our hearts with a handful of people who need your son and show us how to engage those men and women. Father, we pray that your kingdom would just begin to, to break out in our own lives and, and that we would have the joyous experience of inviting other people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we know, it's really no longer in temples made with hands, but now, Lord, your spirit is moving everywhere. You're moving in each one of us. And, and each one of us is qualified enough to go into the world and say, Jesus is Lord and he can make you whole. Now come to the river. And I pray, Father, that that simple message would be on each of our lips, Lord, and that, that, that we would be compelled to go out and see more people one for you. In Jesus' name.